Are you the student that God has called you to be? Are you the student that God has called you to be? And maybe that question strikes you as very strange for this setting where you have a man that's presenting God's Word. This is not some kind of academic class. Uh, you're not going to start talking about algebra and trigonometry and calculus, are you? No, but I am going to ask this question again. Are you the student that God calls you to be? Because I think there's a misconception out there among religious people, maybe even sometimes among members of the Lord's Church, that uh, there are certain areas of our life that don't fall under the jurisdiction of God's Word. You see, a lot of people think of their lives in compartments. And so they have their religious life, and that's when they go to church on Sunday, maybe go to church on Wednesday, and that's one compartment. And then there's a separate compartment for work, or if you're a student, for school, and maybe you have a separate compartment for recreation, and a separate compartment for politics, and all these different compartments that we have, of which religion, our service to God, is just one of many compartments. And so the thinking is, is that, yeah, God is fine in His Word and His rules and His instructions as long as we're in the religion silo. That's fine. But don't bring that over into the workplace. Don't bring that over into the classroom. And don't bring that over into my politics. And don't bring that over into my recreation. And yet, nothing of the sort is taught in the New Testament. <laughs> the Bible does not teach that religion is a part of our life. What the Bible teaches is God governs the entirety of our life. Everything we do is under the jurisdiction of God's Word. Let me prove that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2. The Bible says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. And so what are the sacrifices, what is the sacrifice that we in the New Testament dispensation, that we as Christians, as we on this side of the cross, what is the sacrifice that we offer? Is it the blood of bulls? Is it the blood of goats? No, he says our very bodies are to be offered as a sacrifice to God. Now think about that for a second. What do we use our bodies to do? Everything. <laughs> what can you do in this world that doesn't involve your body? You go to school in your body. You go to work in your body. You talk with people with your body. There's not anything you can do that doesn't implicate in some way your body. And yet here is God saying the entirety of your existence, the entirety of your body is to be offered as a sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable to God. And then for those people who think, well, that's extraordinary, that's unreasonable, that's asking too much, he adds, and that is just reasonable service. That's what you're supposed to do. But our entire existence is to be offered up as a sacrifice to God. That doesn't sound like compartmentalization to me. 
That doesn't sound like we got the religion silo here and we got the business silo here and we got the... No, 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 no. Everything we do falls under the jurisdiction of God's work. And so we need to keep that in mind when we go to school, when we go to classes, when we do homework, when we do our jobs. Everything we do falls under the jurisdiction of God's Word, and we need to do whatever we're doing consistent with that Word. Sometimes people say, well, that's just business, as if that's an exception to God's Word. No, it's not. If you're doing business in a way that's contrary to God's Word, you need to stop doing business that way. Because that's sinful. And you say, well, that's just not practical. I just can't make any money. Then you better find something else to do. I don't think that's the truth, but you better if you find it to be uh, uh, out of harmony with God's Word. Because everything we do, folks, is supposed to come under the jurisdiction of God's Word. And I love, again, that's just reasonable service. Don't think that's extraordinary. That's just what, when we recognize what God has done for us, that's a rational response to that God. Everything we have comes from the hand of God. As I like to remind people, the fact that we're here today, tonight, this evening, the fact that you're here, we, we just take that for granted, don't we? Where was there a mandate for God to create you? Did God have to create you? He just had to do that. The earth had to be blessed. No, 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 he didn't. That's a gift. Acts 17, Paul says, uh, the Lord gives us life, breath, and all things. Gifts. Existence is a gift. Life is a gift. And if life is a gift, doesn't it make sense that we offer that gift back to him as a sacrifice, showing appreciation and thankfulness for everything he's done for us? That's what we're talking about, an entire sacrifice. So there's nothing under the sun that we can do that doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of God's Word. Let's don't carve things out. We need to figure out what does the Lord say about that thing. And tonight I'm asking this question, are you the student that God calls you to be? Because the Word of the Lord, the Word of God, has principles that apply to how we are as students. And in everything that we do, we want to be like Jesus was, as was expressed in John chapter 8 and verse 29. Turn over there real quick. John chapter 8, verse 29. And everything that we do, if we're going to offer our entire existence, if we're going to offer ourselves, our bodies as a sacrifice to God, then we need to have the attitude that Jesus expressed in John chapter 8, verse 29. John, the 8th chapter verse 29, where Jesus said this, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. Now listen to this. For I always do those things that please him. That's, that's a phenomenal statement. I mean, think about that. Jesus says, I always do the things that please the Father. And if you don't think that's a remarkable statement, uh, ask this question. Could those words come out of your mouth in all sincerity? Not for me. Not for me. Always! I always do in everything that I do under the sun, I do the things that please my Father. Now that's the goal, folks. And that applies in every aspect of our lives. That applies in how we interact with our spouses. It applies to how we interact with our children. It applies to how our children interact with the parents. It applies to our workplaces. It applies to the classrooms. It applies to the neighborhoods, to the ball teams, to the family reunions, to the checkout line at Walmart, to uh, being on the highway. And everything we do, we need to be able to say, I strive to always please my Father. 
And so if the Word of God has something to say about how we are as students, then we better take heed, and more importantly, we better start obeying. And I want to suggest tonight that the Word of God does have principles that apply to being a student. And so again, the question, are you the student that God calls you to be? And I want you to keep that question in mind throughout the duration of the sermon, and then we're going to re-ask that very same question. And if the answer to that question, and that's something I want you to evaluate yourself, answer individually, if the answer to that question is no, I want you to repent of that. I want you to be the student that God charges and calls you to be. First point, God calls us to prepare to provide for ourselves, for our family, and for those who are in need. God calls us to prepare to provide for ourselves, for our family, and for those in need. Let's prove that from the Scriptures. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul has some instructions about those brethren who had been walking disorderly. And part of their disorderliness was the fact that they were not working. And in the context of that discussion, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul makes a very fundamental point that we want to borrow for purposes of the sermon tonight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. Now notice, it's not a suggestion. It's not aspirational. He says, this is a command. We commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. If anyone will not work, he's not going to eat. If you have the ability to work, notice he didn't say, if anyone cannot work. He says, if anyone will not work, if you choose not to work, he says, you don't eat, which tells me something that one of the reasons why I work is to provide the things that I need. And that is a biblical principle. We're not talking about macroeconomics, and we're not talking about community and civic upliftment. We're talking about a spiritual principle that I am responsible as an adult to provide for my needs. And I need to prepare myself to do that. That's an obligation that I'm going to have. So if I'm a student, if I'm a child, I need to be thinking about that. I need to put myself in a position where I can do the very thing that Paul said by inspiration is a command. If you're not going to work, then you don't eat. And so one of the purposes for working is to provide for ourselves. And we need to put ourselves in a position to where we can do that. It's a biblical... When we talk to our kids, we talk about it in this language. We have a tendency to borrow the world's language. We'll talk about, well, you don't want to be a drain on society. And you don't want to be on welfare. You don't want to be sucking up all the tax dollars. And you want to be successful. You want people to admire you. You want people to look up to you. You want to be able to have all this kind of money and have this kind of lifestyle. No, no, no. We work because God demands that we work. I remember one time I was listening to a preacher preach, and, and I don't know if it was just got carried away with the point. Sometimes preachers will do that. But, but he made this statement. He said, and, and, and work, work is the result of the curse on man, the fall in the Garden of Eden. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he just say? He said, working was a result of the curse. No, 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 no. He, he couldn't have said that. I know he didn't say that because when I read my Bible in Genesis, let's read over there in Genesis chapter 2.
Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Let's just start reading. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water in the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gehan. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. Listen to this, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To tend and keep him. Folks, that's work. <laughs> that's work. God put man in the Garden of Eden to do work. Now, chronologically, is that before or after the fall? It's before. So it had nothing to do with the curse. Don't tell me that the fact that we have to work is a curse. No, God made man as a working being. God intended for man to have a job, to do something. And so that is something we need to prepare ourselves for. So as you're a child, you'd be thinking, I need to put myself in a position so that I can fulfill that aspect of God's will for me, so that I can provide for myself. I need to put myself in a position. Now, we all know the better you do at school learning something, and I'm not saying what it is you need to learn. It can be a trade. It can be an academic discipline, whatever. But learning something, the better I do at that, the better able I'm going to be to fulfill that command to take care of myself, to provide for myself. But not only that, there's more to it than that. Remember we said at the very beginning, to prepare to provide for ourselves, for our family, and for those who are in need. So let's deal with that. For our family, do we have obligations to provide for our family? Yes, we do. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. First Timothy, the fifth chapter, and verse 8. And this is in the midst of discussion about how to honor those who are truly widows. Widows indeed. This point is made in the midst of that discussion. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. First Timothy, the 5th chapter, verse 8. Now listen to this. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong statement, folks. That is a strong statement. He says if a Christian does not, and he's a Christian, a baptized believer, one who's a member of the Lord's church, if he doesn't provide for his own, especially of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wait a minute. Unbeliever is lost. Is worse than an unbeliever. You couldn't be more serious about this idea of providing for your family. And we know by looking around this society, we have a lot of people who don't understand this fundamental principle. And again, we're not talking about tax policy, and we're not talking about uh, macroeconomics, and we're not talking about uh, some political platform. We're talking about the Bible, what God says. I have an obligation to provide for myself, but not just myself, for my own, especially those who are in my household, which suggests that our obligations go beyond just the people that are in my house. 
Thought about that? Obligations you have to your family? That's one of the reasons why we work, is to have something to help those in our family. See, that's a different way of looking at it. So many of us, when we work, we just think selfishly about what I want, what I want to buy, and what I'm letting. No, 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 wait a minute. There are other people who have biblical claims on that money, so to speak. We need to be helping people in our family. We need to take care of our family. It is just infuriating when you see parents who will neglect their children to pursue their hobbies and what they want to do and make sure they're dressed to the nines and the children can't even get the basics done. Somebody else has to swoop in and help them out. That's unbiblical, folks. That's unbiblical no matter if you're a Democrat, Republican. That means nothing. It's unbiblical. We have a biblical responsibility to provide for our own, provide for our family. And that might I suggest that that also extends to our parents. To our parents. You don't believe that. Go a little bit earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and look at verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to what? To repay their parents. Why? For this is good and acceptable before God. If we have parents who are in need, whose responsibility is to take care of them? That's my responsibility. That's my parents. My responsibility. I'm not going to put it on anybody else. Not the government, not other people, not other church members, or the church members where my, my dad worships. That's my responsibility. God says you ought to repay your parents with piety. When you start thinking about all the things that your parents have done for you, and in your case perhaps still doing for you, that ought to be an easy command to keep. Because they've provided everything for us. Everything. I mean, this way, you'll understand later. I understood a lot better once I got older and had my own kids. But wow, God did all that. It's a lot of stuff, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort. And now the Lord says you ought to repay that time and that money and that effort with your own efforts to take care of them. That ought to be natural. That should be common sense. But you look around and you know it's not common sense. And the sad thing is, I've seen it's not even common sense among some brethren. You've got members of the church who have completely forsaken this teaching. And it is biblical teaching. Like any teaching, if you fail to do it, it's a sin. And any sin that's not covered in the blood of Jesus will cost you your soul. That's how serious it is. It's not aspirational. This is a command. We must take care of our own. As you said, if you don't, you're worse than an unbeliever. And we know an unbeliever has no part in heaven. And so these are the sorts of things that we need to what, prepare ourselves for. If I'm in class, I'm in school, I need to be thinking, okay, God has given me a mandate I have to take care of myself, I have to provide for myself, but God has also given me a mandate that I've got to provide for those in my family. But it doesn't stop there. Remember, there was a third category that I said that we need to prepare to provide for ourselves, for our family, and for the needy. Wait a minute, Kevin, too many people i got to take care of here. Keep, keep reading. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 28. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 28. The Bible says this. Let him who stole steal no longer. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Why? That he may have a big bass fishing boat. Why? that he may have a second vacation home in Florida. Why? That he may be able to go on vacation to Florida. Why? That he may have a home studio. No, why? That he may have something to give him who has need. That's one of the reasons why we work. 
so that we have something to give to those who are without, those who need help. So that when somebody comes to you, you don't have to say, sorry, you know, spend it all, don't have any money. I, I'd love to, but you know, I paid the cable bill and, or direct TV or Netflix and I've, I've got my house over here and I've got my two or three cars over there and I just, I'm, I'm all tapped out. No, no, no. You can't be all tapped out because the Lord says one of the reasons why you work is to have something to provide to those who are in need. And that's a biblical obligation, folks. What was the wording of that, Ephesians 4.20? That's a command. That's a command. And just like any command, if we don't do it, what is that? Sin. I mean, that's what it is, right? Let's call it what it is. We don't like it to make us uncomfortable because maybe we're not doing this. But the Lord says, yeah, one of the reasons why you're working. So the next time, for those who are working age, the next time you get a raise, the next time you get a bonus, remember Ephesians 4.28. Remember that some of that money is to go to those who are in need. There's a brother in Christ that I've, I've talked with, and he's got the idea right. He says every time he gets paid, he will carve out a chunk of that just to have a fund for the needy. Now, there's a brother that understands Ephesians 4.28. He's individually saying, I'm carving out some funds so that I don't have the embarrassing, awkward situation of having somebody come to me and ask for help, and I've got to say, well, it's all spent. I don't have anything for you. He said, no, I'm going to lay aside something. I'm talking about an individual now so that I can give to those who are in need. And then that obligation is even greater when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. This obligation is even greater when it comes to those among the Lord's people who are in need. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. The Bible says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, a reference to Jesus, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Here's the litmus test for love. He says, we ought to love each other so much that we, looking at the example of Jesus, the ultimate example of love, we ought to look at that and be willing to do what he did, which is to lay down our lives for our brethren. Do you realize that? That we ought to be willing to die for one another? Now, if I asked you, would you be willing to do that? I think most of us would very quickly say what's politically correct, or maybe we say biblically correct. Yeah, sure, absolutely, I'd do that. So I love the way how that's positioned. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Then he kind of transitions to, okay, whoever has this world's good and you see your brother is without and you don't provide anything and you might have been one of those that said, yeah, oh yeah, I'd die for my brother. You, you wouldn't die for your brother. You won't even take care of his physical needs. You won't even take care of the financial needs. You won't even take of this world's goods and help him out. And yet you're saying, oh yeah, I would die for my brother. Sure, absolutely. Come on now. It's all about love. How much do we love our brethren? And if we see somebody, and folks, let me say this. Somebody's not, well, I don't know anybody who's in need. I don't know anybody who needs them. As if somebody's got to walk up to you and say, hello, brother in need right here. Come on, folks. We, we know each other, don't we? We should. If we don't, we need to spend more time with each other so that we know when a brother or sister's in need and we take out of our own pocket. I was talking to a brother one time about this subject. He was telling me there was a situation that came up in his congregation where somebody needed some help, and it came to his attention. 
And he said, you know, my first instinct was, let, let me go to the elders and let me let them know about it so they can take care of this. Because this is a needy saint, somebody who needs something in, in, in good standing with the Lord as, as far as I can tell. And he said, and then I thought about it. And I said, wait a minute. Why am I going to the elders? I can take care of this myself. First John 3, 16 through 8. You see, he realized, hey, that's my brother. I have this world's goods. My brother's needing. And I don't have to go somewhere else. I can take care of this myself right here, right now. The brother got First John 3, 16 through 18. There was another brother in a congregation in Atlanta. He had been laid off from his job for a long period of time. And uh, he was one of those fellows that uh, uh, loved to talk and loved to stay around. He's always one of the last people out of the church building. And he, like most of us, had his designated spot. You know, we all have our places where we sit all the time. We're just, just short of having nameplates there. And so he left his spot, walking around, talking, having a good time. And he came back to his spot after almost everybody's left. And there was a big envelope bulging full of money with nobody's name on it. I talked to the brother literally sometime last year. I said, man, did, did you ever find out who gave you that? No, not to this day. I don't know who gave me that money. That's somebody to understand 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Don't they? Took out of their own pocket and gave the brother some money anonymously. He still doesn't know who gave him that money. But the point is, is these are the things that we are called to do as good stewards of the blessings that God gives us from our work. And as children or students or young adults, we need to be preparing ourselves so that we're in a position to provide for ourselves, to provide for our families, and to provide for those who are in need, both those who are in the church and out of the church. Those are all individual responsibilities, folks. Sounds like we got a lot to do with our money. And we need to get prepared for that. That's the point I'm making. Be prepared to do the best that you can do in providing for yourself and your family and the needy. And the better that you do it, whatever it is you do, the greater capacity you have to enrich the lives of other people. But that's, it's a servant mentality. It's not uh, capitalism on steroids. Well, I just want to have the most toys, and I just want to have the biggest house, and I want to have the nicest car. And you hear those kind of rationale that are given sometimes to try to motivate kids to do better, and I understand where that's coming from, but we're coming from a biblical perspective. And so we're not going to use carnal weapons, right? We're going to motivate our children by saying this is what the Lord demands. The Lord demands this out of you. The reason why you're working hard to be prepared for that test that you have uh, Monday is because the Lord demands that you do the best you can to provide for yourself and for your family and for the needy in the world and for the needy among the saints. Now, see, that's a whole different rationale, right? It's not just to line your pockets. No, it's to help. It's to serve. And we haven't even talked about what you could do with that money to help broaden the borders of the Lord's kingdom. A lot of things to be done with our money, but the point to be made here is we have to prepare ourselves to fulfill those responsibilities. Second point to be made is this. God calls us to be the best students we can possibly be. God calls us to be the best students we can possibly be. And somebody's going to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not we, we, we all know that there are some people who are gifted when it comes to academics, just like there are some people who are gifted on the gridiron and some people are gifted on the basketball court and some people are gifted with musical instruments. But, but, but let me offer an observation here. And the observation holds true in academics and in the workplace. And I heard a guy say this, and he's absolutely right about it. Most of the success, as the world would define it, that you see in the classroom and in the workplace is not a matter of 
capability, intellect. You know what it is? It's character. It's character. It's things like working hard. It's things like being responsible. It's things like doing your homework, paying attention, sacrifice. It's character issues. There was a brother, he was talking about his daughters and what he was teaching them, and, and he said, look, they're not learning all the latest and greatest things that have to be offered out there, but he said they're learning the basics, the fundamentals, and they will be successful, as successful as they need to be in this life to fulfill what God's role is for them. And he's so right about that because you see time and time again people who may have great talents and great abilities but no character, not dependable, don't come in on time, uh, do terrible quality work, don't uh, pull their end of the weight, leave too early, take too long for lunch, dishonest, fraudulent at times. Those are all character issues. Christians ought to be the best employees. Christians ought to be the best students. Why? Because they're working as unto the Lord. And because they're working as to the Lord, they are giving the best they have to give. And that's the point. I'm not talking about looking out and starting to compare and say, well, I've got to do better than him, and I've got to do better than her, and I've got to compete. It's not what I said. I said, Christian, God calls Christians to be the best students they can be. You're competing against yourself. You want to put the best. You can have this. You can, and I saw this. I saw this in school. You had guys that were just brilliant, just brilliant, and they wouldn't study. They wouldn't spend much time on homework and come in and knock the test out. They're just brilliant. Is that good enough? Well, I knocked the test out. I killed it. I got to the highest praise of anybody. But you didn't do the best you could do. And in God's book, that's a failure. You're not using what God has given to you. You've got to do the best you can with it. Let's look at some biblical principles on that. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. God calls us to be the best students we can be. Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter, and the tenth verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And verse 10, Ecclesiastes 9, 10 says this, Whatever, whatever your hand finds to do, pretty broad, <laughs> whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Why? For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. So whatever your hand finds to do, whether it's sweeping streets, whether it's doing homework, whether it's listening to a lecture, whether it's uh, fixing somebody's car, whatever your high hand finds to do, do it how? With all your might. With your might, your strength, your vigor. Do the best you can do. Why? We talked about this a little bit at the uh, 4 o'clock. Because our window is rapidly eroding on life. When we die, there won't be any work being done. There. So he says, work now. You have the opportunity now. No work in the grave. And he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it to the best of your ability. Now, what is that again? It's a command. What if you don't do that? It's a sin. Now, let, let that sink for a second here. This is not self-help. This is not uh, how to get rich. And, and uh, This is saying that God calls us to be, whatever we do, the best we can do, at that thing. I mean, this goes well beyond just classrooms and students. I mean, everybody here, whatever it is you do, you better do it to the best of your ability. And if not, you're not fulfilling that command. Let's look at some more. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. God calls us 
to be the best students that we can be. Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 22 through 24. The Bible says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Listen to this. And whatever you do, does this sound familiar? And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. He says to bond servants, he says, well, now when you do your work, don't do that as if you're just trying to please this master. Don't do it because if you do it as to men, you know what, how that happens, right? When the cat's away, the mice will play. Yeah, you've seen that in the workplace. When the supervisors and managers are gone, work doesn't get done as well. Doesn't, doesn't get done on time. People do all kinds of things. I, I worked uh, in a, a court office in Memphis, and uh, my judge that I worked for, she had a very uh, strict dress code. And for the ladies in her office who worked for her, she required that they wear dresses. You were not going to wear pants in this particular judge's chambers. Well, she went overseas, right? She was out for a little while. As I say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. So a couple of the ladies thought, it's gone. We don't have to wear dresses anymore. And so they went a couple of days, and they're wearing those pants and wearing jeans, and this so happened. Judge came back early. <laughs> Woo! It went rough for them. It went rough for them. But that's, that's what I service. Just whenever the supervisor is there, whenever the manager is there and looking at you, then you're going to work really hard and everything. I always I thought it was neat. We, we have these audits and everything, and you find out ahead of time, and everybody fixes everything up. And I'm like, what does that prove? You know, if I'm going to audit somebody, I'm going to come in unannounced. That's why I don't find out what you really do. But he's saying we don't work like that. Why? Because we're working as unto the Lord. Remember, we established Hebrews 4.13. The Lord sees everything. Let me think about this for a second. Seriously. If the Lord gave you a homework assignment, if Jesus gave you a homework assignment, how would you work on that assignment? I bet you that'd be the hardest work you've ever done in your life. And he says, you know what? That's the way you ought to be working anyway. <laughs> As unto me. And like I said, this principle goes well beyond just homework. I mean, for y'all that have jobs out there, you need to be working as if you're working for the Lord. With the Lord, where you're supervising. The Lord, where you're manager. How would you come to work on time? What about those breaks? 45-minute break? Be 45 minutes. What? Why 40? We'll make sure you don't get close to that. You would do what you said you are going to do. If you told the Lord, hey, I'm going to have this done by a certain time, guess what? It's going to get done by that time, right? It's the Lord. <laughs> and you're going to give 110% because, you know, your, your uh, men, they don't know. You know, I could be just kind of half-stepping, but I can fool men, but I can't fool the Lord. The Lord knows when I'm half-stepping. So you're going to get 110% from me if the Lord is my manager, supervisor, or my teacher, or my professor. That's the way we're supposed to work. That's the way we're supposed to do our studies. That's the way we're supposed to be a student, as if the Lord. We're doing it adding to the Lord. And let me say this. There's a lot of benefit to this. We are ambassadors for Christ, right? We're sharing the gospel. We're sharing the good news. We have information that the world around us doesn't. Now, if, if I'm not a Christian, I'll just tell you about myself. Uh, there's one thing the Clark boys know. We may not know a whole lot, but we know how to work hard. And I was just raised that way. I have a real hard time with laziness. If you're a lazy person, don't tell me. I do not like, I can't stand laziness. I don't understand. Don't understand. Don't, that's just something I got to work on. So if, if I'm a non-believer and I'm in the workplace 
And you're a Christian. I'm lost. You're saved. You got the gospel. I don't. But you're always late. You never get anything done right. You have to do stuff. You leave early. You take extended breaks. You always get terrible performance evaluations. And then you're going to sidle up to me and say, now, let's talk about the gospel. No, <laughs> we're not talking about the gospel. What we're going to talk about is you get here on time. We're going to talk about you get your work together. You be dependable. You tell the truth. Once you get your act together, then you can talk to me about the gospel. But until you get your act, I don't want to hear the gospel from you. That's just a, a bad way we are. Sometimes we judge the message by the messenger, right? So you don't want to do anything that would undermine your influence for Christ. So if you are on time, if when you say you're going to do something, you do it, if you spend the time, you give, what is it, a hard day's work for a hard day's pay, if you do what you say you're going to do, you put yourself in a position where you can influence more people. People will listen to you. Because what? You're faithful in what you're doing. In fact, look at this. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. You see this? Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. That's the second chapter, verses 9 through 10. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. The Bible says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. I think it's great. You can, you can live your life in such a way. You can adorn the doctrine. But how can the bondservants adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ? Did you notice that? He said, don't answer back. Don't steal. Be faithful in your service. You see that? It's a point we're making. You be excellent. Do the best you can do. And in doing that, you adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. But a lot of us, we detract from the gospel because we're lazy. We're not on time. We don't keep our word. We're not faithful in these duties. He says, here's how you adorn the doctrine. You don't answer back. You don't steal. You be faithful. And then you can adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ. See, it goes, it's, it's bigger than just, I want to be an A student. It's bigger than I want to get a great job. It's bigger than I want to have a big house. I mean, you're bearing the name of Christ. Don't bring reproach on the name of Christ. Don't dare conduct yourself in a way that's going to embarrass those who belong to Christ. Do the best you can do. No, I'm not saying everybody's going to be a rocket scientist. No, I'm not saying everybody's going to be a whiz kid. No, I'm not saying everybody's going to be a child prodigy. That's, I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, you, whatever your hand finds to do, do it to the best of your ability. The Lord demands that we be the best students that we can be. Similar uh, concept, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Really a parallel passage to Colossians 3, verses 22 to 24 that we just read. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. The Bible says this, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, here's that phrase again, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond service of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And so the bond servants are told that when they offer their service, they do it as to Christ, as to the Lord, not with eye service, not men pleasing. They're doing it as to God, doing it from the heart, doing it with goodwill, doing it with sincerity, doing it with fervency. And that same principle applies to anything we do, whether in the workplace or preparing to go to the workplace. So my question is, does that characterize how you prepare for your test? 
Does that characterize how you listen to the teacher during class? Does that characterize how faithful you are in doing your homework? You say, oh man, what's the big deal about that stuff? It's a huge deal. The Lord demands that we do it to the best of our ability. There's a spiritual component to this. Remember, we don't believe in compartmentalization because the Bible doesn't teach that. Everything we do has an impact on God's Word because God's Word regulates everything we do. There's nothing you can find that we can do that doesn't have a biblical principle that oversees that. And so we need to be careful that when we do whatever it is our hand finds to do, we do it to the best of our ability. There's no room for mediocrity in God's kingdom. I want you to take that to heart. Again, we're not talking about self-help. We're not talking about get-rich schemes. None of that. We're talking about basic biblical teaching that says that whatever I do, whether I'm an employee or a student, I've got to do it to the best of my ability. Third point in lesson number one. God calls us to be the best Bible student we can possibly be. And I want to emphasize this point because sometimes we emphasize the second point, being the best student that we can be, to the neglect of Bible study. And I want you to understand this point. The most important work that you can do in terms of being a student is not studying algebra, trigonometry, calculus, or English, or world history, but it's God's work. When uh, I was growing up, my mom was adamant about this. Bible lessons came first. That was the first thing you were going to do. And hopefully you get to the rest of the stuff, but, but you were going to get that Bible lesson. And a lot of times, even Christian parents get this backwards. And they emphasize getting the secular homework done, and then sometimes don't even bother to check to see if their kids are prepared for Bible class. Now, friends, that's not putting the Lord first, Matthew 6.33. We as the parents have to set the tone, and then you as the children need to pick up that cue. God comes first. And it's so important that we study the Bible, that we take advantage of opportunities to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first thing I would say is, when we have Bible classes, come! <laughs> come. You say, oh, that's, 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 that's a simple, that's elementary. No, not for everybody. Because I've been to congregations where there are people who will specifically skip Bible class and come right in. I mean, they've got to really be measuring that thing right in on time to start the worship service. What, did you realize we had an hour ago a Bible study? What, why, why are you putting all the emphasis on the, the worship? Well, that's where the Lord's Supper, and we've got to pretend. That's why they came together. That, that's true. But we have an opportunity to study God's Word to grow and develop in our knowledge of the revealed will of God. Is that not important? But what was so important that you just had to miss that? I need to know. There must be something really major going on out there that is so important that we can't show up to study God's Word. The very thing that's going to determine your eternal destiny. What is that thing? What is so, is it fishing? Is it hunting? Is it sleeping late? Is it breath? I mean, what is it that's so important? We just cannot get here to study God's Word. Matthew 10, I mean, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Biblical education and being the best Bible student we can be starts with just showing up, just being there. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And the Bible says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
Why do I come to the assemblies? Well, one of the reasons I come right here is I'm considering one another. I'm considering my brethren. You ever thought about that? That when you choose not to assemble with the saints, that's a selfish decision. Because you're depriving them of the opportunity to be stirred up to love and good works. You know, it's real hard to stir somebody up to love and good works if you're not here. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. And so he says to consider one another, please don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together. So when a group sets aside a time and says we're going to come together and we're going to study God's Word, why would you neglect that opportunity? Well, we need as much of that as we can get. I mean, that's the thing that I start to appreciate more and more. And folks say, wow, we're hearing the same old stuff and we already know this. You remember the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3 that he could stir up your minds by way of remembrance? And if you've been in the Lord's church for any period of time, you've had this happen. You've heard a sermon preached, and you knew that material. There was nothing new in that, but it stirred you up. Why? Because it was in that mind, but it might have been buried back there, and it got brought to the forefront of your consciousness, and you realized you were convicted. I need to do better on that. That's the way we, we need to hear this over and over again because Satan doesn't stop. Worldliness doesn't stop. The secularism, they're pumping their message in every way they can think of and we've got to counteract that and God's Word is the answer to that. The more you hear God's Word, the more you're going to be fortified. You, you wonder why it is you struggle so much with sin. That's a faith problem. Ephesians 6 talks about the shield of faith by which we can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. You need more faith. Where does that faith come from? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The more you're exposed to the Word of God, the more faith you're going to have. The more faith you're going to have, the more strength you're going to have to resist the temptations of the devil. There you go. There's no, no secret to it. no magic. So when we have opportunities, gospel means Vacation Bible school, opportunities to hear God's Word. Why would we not be there? It's important, folks. Our souls are on the line. And we need to be good Bible students, too. And so it's not enough. It's good to show up. That's a start. But you've got to show up prepared. There's no sense, and, and maybe we've all done it. There's no sense in us coming to Bible class unprepared. There's really no sense in us coming with no Bible. And there's really no sense in us coming having not prepared for the lesson that's been assigned for that period. And I, I'm, I'm stomping on my toes. I'm stomping on some toes out there. I'm pretty sure if I were preaching Oak Mountain, I'd be stomping on some toes. People will show up having not studied the lesson. There's no sense in that. We need to make sure, one, that we get our lessons as adults, as a parent. And that's sometimes a challenge, isn't it? Because let, let's be honest, a lot of us have been in the Lord's Church for a long period of time. And a lot of us could just kind of roll up into class, having not done any study, and probably have a lot to say, just the cumulative effect of all the Bible lessons and all the sermons and all the studying we've done over a course of decades. But that's not being prepared. And in fact, sometimes you see it. I've seen in some classes that you'll have a Bible class teacher ask a question, and it's based on a certain text that was selected for review and study for that particular class period. My brother raised his hand and He'll say a biblical principle just as true as the day is long. It has absolutely nothing to do with the text of the consideration. But, but it's true. 
And uh, it's, always, it's always funny to me to see how the teacher deals with that. You know, and some of them be like, that's totally off, and just call them out. Others try to work it in, see if they can try to bring it back to the text. But the teacher shouldn't have to do that because we should prepare our lessons. And if our children notice that we're not prepared, are they going to listen to us and say, oh, you need to get your lesson. No, they're going to say, you didn't get yours. You don't have any credibility. Don't say that, kids. Don't. My problem was I would verbalize those observations. And uh, my dad believed in the belt, so <laughs> you can wonder how that went. Um, but we have to be prepared. Look at 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. We need to be prepared for our Bible studies. Being the best Bible student that we can be. 2 Timothy 2.15, reading from the New King James Version, says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Did you know that Bible study is work? He says, now you need to be a worker who's not ashamed. Why would you be ashamed? Because I cannot rightly divide the word of God. So I got to work, and not only did say work, I got to be what? I got to be diligent about it. I got to really work hard to understand God's word so I can rightly divide it, so I can interpret it correctly, so I understand the word of God. You can't roll up in the Bible study having not read the lesson and expect to rightly divide the word of God. You need to study. You know, there's this thing called growth, 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. Did you know that spiritual growth, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow, spiritual growth is a command. It's something we must do. And if the Lord says you must do that, then we have control over spiritual growth. It's not just something that happens. Well, you can't grow unless you make some effort. We've got to study. We grow by the pure milk of God's Word. Study that Word. If you have memory work, do your memory work. If you have workbooks and you have questions you need to be answered, answer the questions. Spend the time. Because you're laying up treasures in heaven. Folks, I'm going to tell you, that Bible study is really going to help you. It's amazing. There's some things that, that I remember and I know because of years of intense Bible study at the Oak Ridge Church of Christ where I grew up. And that, that's a great legacy to be left. But you've got to take advantage of it. You've got to study it. You've got to get in there and have, you have some great discussions with your teachers. And you've got questions. Write your questions down and ask. Uh, there, there's a couple of classes at Oak Ridge, and I was talking to some of the teachers, and they were telling me, like, wow, you really got to be on your toes with this class because they'll ask you all kinds of questions. We're talking about 10, 11, 12-year-olds asking deep questions. That's great. I love that. We need to have that. Um, we were talking about Amanda Duggan. She was a young lady that I uh, taught uh, in, in Memphis at the Bartlett congregation, and she was that kind. She'd ask some hard questions. You better be on your toes. If you misspoke and you threw something out there, she was going to call you on that. So we as teachers need to be prepared. We need to make sure that we have our lessons planned. We need to make sure when we're talking. I, I had this situation with Jasmine one time. That's my oldest daughter, and we were talking about something. And she asked me a question. And if I'm honest, I really hadn't studied that text really intensely at that point in time. So I gave what I thought was a decent answer, and she sliced and diced it up. And the more I looked at it, I was like, yeah, she's right about that. She's not, I'm sorry. I, I, I need to repent of that. Let, let me, let's study that a little bit more. We need to be good students of God's Word. Because if you can rightly divide the Word of God, what can you also do? Wrongly divide. And there's a lot of that going on. But how do you guard against that? You study. You meditate. You, as Paul told Timothy, give yourself entirely to these things. That's time, folks. We've got to carve out time in our schedule and spend time with God's Word. I know there's so many things competing for our time and our attention. We've got to block it out. We've got to study God's Word to be the best Bible students that we can be. It's important, folks. And I hope that we, I mean, I, I used to make this point. I said, look, I have never, and I never did, I never failed a test because I put God first. 
And I, I don't believe I've ever heard a Christian, you know, because somebody, oh, I, 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 I got it. I got this big test. I got this big exam. I got this big project. So I'm just going to uh, neglect the Bible study. I may not even go to Bible study. Oh, you go to Bible study. And you do the best you can. And again, I, I don't want to suggest that you can't do both. My mom, she was pretty hard. She said, you can do both. <laughs> you can do both. You do your studies. But more importantly, be prepared for Bible class. That was a cardinal sin in our house. You did not go to Bible class unprepared. And so I hope that, and let me say this too. I know we've talked about the parents a lot, but really, you know whose responsibility is to make sure that you're prepared when you go to Bible class? It's y'all. It's y'all's responsibility. I don't care if you're 8, 7, 6, 10, 12, 15. It's really your responsibility. You're old enough to take out the Bible, take out the lesson book, and study. Now, you may have some questions, and you certainly want to ask your parents for that. I understand that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with parents leading you through the study and checking after you. But ultimately, it's not the parents' responsibility. Ultimately, it's your responsibility. They have their own responsibility. But you as an individual have a responsibility. And that's something I learned in my house. It was my job to prepare for my Bible class. Because they have their own Bible classes they're preparing for. And so we need to take some ownership in that. To make sure that we're the best Bible students we can be, we need to make sure we carve out time. And it doesn't matter if you go on vacation. It doesn't matter if you have exams. Carve out that time. Why? Because we're putting the Lord first. Oh, Brother Gwen, I know he had a sermon on putting the Lord first uh, that he preached years and years ago. Um, I think it might have been in Nashville. But uh, it convicted me, basically on Matthew 6, 33, that, that we need to, to put the Lord first. And we need to be here when they're assembling. And uh, personally, based on what he taught and how I was convicted, I, I, don't, I don't miss services for work. I don't think, I don't know, there's kind of this understood uh, exception for work, and not for me. And, and I tell brother when we talk about it, I say, look, you, you ain't got to convince me. You better be prepared to convince Jesus now. I, you don't worry about me. Let's be here. What a, that's a powerful statement when we're always here. And you don't know who's watching, folks. There are people in your workplace that are watching. And here's the thing. When you start compromising... Where's the end of that? Because once you compromise that first time, any good manager is going to be, well, wait a minute, now you messed over here. Why can't you do it again? And you have no principled response to that. You don't. Other than to say, I repented that. I shouldn't have done it. I'm not going to do it again. That's the best you can do. I always tell people, fight that battle early and often when you first get into the position. And once you fight that early and often, guess what? You ain't got to fight it anymore. People don't come to me about that question. They know where Kevin Clark's going to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. That's been established for the 19 years I've been there. I, didn't have, I fought that early on and didn't have to fight it. So fight the fight. Fight to put God first. Fight to be prepared. Fight to be a good Bible student and be the best that you can be. And so, let's start with a question that I posed in the very beginning. Are you the student that God calls you to be? God calls us to prepare ourselves to provide for ourselves for our family, and for the needy. God calls us to be the absolute best student that we can be, and God calls us to be the best Bible student that we can be. And I'm asking, does that describe you? And if it doesn't, repent of that. Be serious about the things you do. And as you said, or we said from the pulpit, it goes well beyond just the academics. It's whatever we do. We need to do it to the best of our ability. Don't be lazy. Don't half-step. Do the best you can do. Why? Because you're serving the Lord. And the Lord knows when we give less than our best. And the Lord deserves far more than that. 
So if anyone's here and has not done that, let's start doing that and be pleasing to our God. If you're here and not a Christian, we want to encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity to make your soul right tonight. Don't procrastinate. In a group this size, inevitably there's going to be somebody who knows what they need to do to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason has not done it. Don't let tonight go by without taking advantage of this opportunity. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. If you procrastinate, if you put it off, it's possible there'll be a tomorrow. It's possible you'll have another opportunity. But it's also possible that there won't be a tomorrow. Because the Lord could come, and then you'll be judged in the state that you're in, or you could die. And don't think because you're young you can't die. And, oh, you're immune. Young people feel like they're invulnerable. I remember there was a kid in my ninth grade class, Alan Way. Alan Way was full of life, full of spirit, full of vigor. Alan Way went to sleep one uh, night, and Alan Way did not wake up when he was 14. So don't say it can't happen, it can't. Oh, don't spook us, don't scare us like that. Hey, it's reality, folks. Reality. My job is to present the truth of God's Word. And the truth is, now is the opportunity for you to make your soul right. You know what you need to do. If you know you need to hear the gospel message, you know you need on the basis of hearing that, believe that message. If you know the belief that comes from the Word of God needs to motivate you to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you know that the belief that comes from the Word of God needs to motivate you to repent of your former way of life, if you know that the belief that comes from the Word of God needs to motivate you to be baptized into Christ, which is to be totally immersed in the water, where having your sins washed away and added to the body of Christ, if you know that, why wait? Why not tonight? If anyone is subject to that invitation, which is not mine, it is the Lord's. We ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing. Oh, Father, we pray.